1: Today, my guest is Doug Hyatt. He's a professor of economic analysis and policy at the Rotman School of Management at the University of Toronto, where he teaches micro and macroeconomics in the MBA programs. Today, we discuss the potential solvency bubble, Canada's productivity issues, immigration challenges, student debt forgiveness, balancing the dependency on oil with climate change, the misunderstood invisible hand, and a lot more. Enjoy. Doc, thanks for uh, doing this. Let's get right into it. So we're spending about $2.50 per person uh, in stimulus money when there's about a dollar of wage lost. That doesn't seem to make mathematical sense intuitively to a lot of people. It seems like we're overspending. The argument is that there's a lot of companies out there who really should be going out of business but are staying afloat. Because of the, uh, Because of the help the government has provided, and there's a reckoning coming, and that reckoning will be very hurtful, and it will cause a lot of pain at some point in the in the near future. Do you agree with that, with that sentiment?
0: Well, first thanks,. Arb. I've been looking forward to this, and uh, um, you know, I know the issue here, and the, I think the challenge was that when all of this first started happening. Nobody knew how it was going to turn out. I don't think anybody still really knows how it's going to turn out. But the things that we had in place, and particularly uh, unemployment insurance or employment insurance, as we call it, um, just didn't do the job of being able to get things, get money out the door. It's very rules-based and, you know, strict and, and all of that, all the things that you would normally expect that you would want an employment insurance program to be, but it couldn't get the money out the door quickly. And so the government came up with ways of getting that money out the door quickly. And I think that they just decided, because of the uncertainty and because how frantic people were about it, that uh, the most important thing is to get the money out the door to um, alleviate the additional stress that people have uh, and to not be as rules-focused as they are in other programs. So that's what happened. And now, as we kind of take a step back from this and we learn more and we can see, get a little bit better... Um, picture of where the economy is going to land, uh, that government can now start fine-tuning that programming a little bit. Now, so that's how we got there. With the insolvency bubble part, I think that the challenge is we don't know where we're going to land yet. And so how different will the world be where we're going to land? So you might say, well, these businesses are being kept afloat by the programs, which may be true, when we know exactly where we're going to land, you know, a year from now, and maybe there are going to be fewer restaurants, and maybe there's going to be more of something else. uh, In which case, continuing propping up businesses that in the long term are not going to survive uh, isn't going to help that adjustment. It's just going to make that adjustment slower. Um, And But I guess at the moment, the challenge that we have is we're not really sure where that's going to be. Is the post-COVID world, how much of it is going to look like the pre-COVID world? And how much of those businesses that now appear to be solvent, uh, how many of those uh, are really just undergoing this short-term shock, and so I'm not sure that we know that yet. I don't know that yet. I can imagine that things are going to be a lot different. My jobs are certainly a lot different and are going to be a lot different than they were. But but other things, just not so sure yet.
1: Do you see the government providing any transitional loans for businesses? And what I mean by that is right now we're, we're giving businesses loans, uh, SEBA and, and, and these um, these programs that exist. They're more to get you through the next few months so you can maybe cover payroll or cover rent. Just survive for the next little bit, but as you said, a lot of these businesses might need to pivot a restaurant here might need to go into i don't know laundry. Do you think the government should at that point have another round of loans for those businesses that actually do want to switch and actually pivot because the new new world might be different?
0: yeah well, that's a good question the The pivot part is a little bit more challenging because I don't know that governments are any better than any of the rest of us about deciding and figuring out who the winners are going to be in the future. Um, So, and, you know, with interest rates where they are now, uh, if you go through kind of traditional financing things and you don't have a lender uh, who would be willing to lend you money for the pivot that you're imagining, um, I'm not sure what role government has to play in that of supporting what might be taking on risk that normal private investors wouldn't be willing to take on. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? I don't know. Um, Does it help... Uh, hasten the adjustment does it make the adjustment quicker and easier to whatever the new economy is I kind of doubt it because again governments don't have a, any better record I don't think than anybody else and maybe perhaps a little bit worse about
1: picking industrial winners and losers mm-hmm. so you would rather government kind of stay out of that part and and because the interest rates are so low it, it should it, it's fathomable that people if they want to switch over to a different industry can't just go to their banks and get the loans that should be uh, probably how it should work
0: yeah, I think so. I mean, at least that would be for my tastes. Again, I I don't, to be in the business of picking winners and losers, I think is a tough one. Um, and I think what we need to be doing now, to the extent that we can, is making the adjustment easier to whatever the new world is going to look like, um, without sort of determining in advance what you think that world is going to look like uh, and financing that. Yeah.
1: And this whole support for the people that uh, that have uh, suffered under COVID – is made possible by cooperation between the provincial government and the federal government. For the most part, partisan politics have been kept to the side. You see some great uh, quotes from Doug Ford praising Trudeau. You see Trudeau praising the provinces. Uh, And as you said, I mean, people are generally willing to spend to see, to help people through this tough time. Contrast that with what's happening in the states a little, where the relationship between state and the federal government seems to be very strained when you compare it to the relationship between a province and the federal government in Canada. And one of the reasons um, for that is that states are very much independent entities that almost have to, not almost, a lot of them have to actually have a, a net positive uh, operating uh, income. How much of that relationship has played into the U.S. not necessarily having a handle on what's happening with, the, with COVID?
0: Yeah. Well, I think you know there there is it it does add a big political component to this because as you know leading up to the election and through the election and and thinking about what stimulus stimulus packages were going to look like in the future, the federal government in the US has been a lot less prone to supporting or a lot less willing at least to supporting certain kinds of states that don't kind of you know meet the agenda and it's cities that don't meet the agenda on other things. And you're right, uh, those states and cities are challenged because they can't borrow sort of independently or at least not really easily independently like like governments can in, in Canada, subnational governments, provincial and municipal governments. Um, but in Canada, though, I mean, I think that we... We ought not to be patting ourselves on the back too much (laughs) because, um, you know, going into this, one of the one of the areas where Canada has developed a a very adverse relation or a very adverse reputation uh, rather is with the challenges that we face uh, with the overlapping uh, structures of federal government, provincial governments and municipalities and uh, they have responsibilities each for different things. If investors come to Canada and want to start something up and they want to do something across the country, they've got a problem because it's, you know, interprovincial trade is a big problem in Canada. It's easier to trade with other countries than it is to trade across our own country in many industries. We have restrictive trade practices. And uh, we have uh, challenges with respect to investment and rules around investment. You might want to come to Canada and build something downtown Toronto, but that means that you've got the Canadian government to deal with, the federal government to deal with on certain things. You have um, provincial governments to deal with on certain things, around, even around municipal uh Uh, Law, You have the municipalities to deal with. Everybody's adding in regulations. And it's not that regulation is bad, but regulation is bad when there's multiple levels of it. And each of the levels keep changing it all of the time. And then it just increases the risk. This is stuff that we had going on in Canada before COVID. And for us to be able to get out of COVID successfully and as seamlessly as possible, those things have to be dealt with. And they have never been dealt with in a serious way in Canada. And they've always hurt us. And you know, you compare our productivity numbers, you compare recent uh, indirect, uh, direct investment in Canada from other countries. There's just not a willingness to do it as much as there was in the past. And so maybe what COVID creates is for us, to get to a place where we decide that we do have to work together across all level of governments and start to rationalize this. Uh, but we're not in a great place now, and we weren't in a great place before.
1: And you mentioned productivity there. Canada is notoriously low on the productivity list of, of OECD countries. And no matter which metric you use, you know, labor productivity or whatever, they're, they're usually at the, at the lower end of those things. Are there things that we have learned in COVID which... We can use to bump up our productivity. And as a sidebar to that question, are you actually concerned with that with that metric of low productivity, or is that because that's been going around for a while now? It's not like we were super high and then kind of came down low. Is is that a red herring? And if it not, if it's not, what has COVID done to teach us how to fix it?
0: Yeah. Well, I, I have a, a sort of a philosophy, which is that you know, there's a limited number of hours in a day. And so I have to limit the number of things that I can worry about that I actually can't directly affect myself very (laughs) much. Uh, But the thing that I do worry about all of the time is productivity uh, in Canada because... It's productivity and increasing productivity that is going to get us out of things that existed before COVID. Uh, The challenges that we have with the uh, aging uh, population, you know, with people leaving the workforce, the labour force participation rate, the number of people who are actively involved in the labour market in Canada, either because they're working or because they're actively looking for work, they're unemployed and actively looking for work, that proportion of the population has been declining Pretty steadily for the last decade. And that's where you know we get growth from in the economy is by increases in the labor force. That's been kind of going away and and we've been shrinking. And a part of it is related to the aging demographic. And the only way that you get and now we're adding on lots of debt that's going to have to be paid for mostly through income taxes. And so the question becomes, you know, like how do you how do you connect these dots? How do you fix this problem? And the only real answer to that is by increases in productivity. Productivity increases have to do it. And in Canada, we haven't been great, as you pointed out, at, at increasing productivity. We perked up a little bit after the end of the, um, uh, you know, the sort of 2008 financial crisis. We, we kind of picked up a little bit, and now we're kind of tailing off again. And you know, the reasons are some of the ones that we've talked about already. Some of it is regulatory. Um, investment capital, you need investment money coming in to you know, purchase machinery and equipment and process and software and all the kinds of things that make economies more productive. But who's going to do that in an environment where regulatory risk uh, is so great? And so it, we haven't had inflows of capital into Canada uh, very much. Uh, businesses, particularly in the services sector, have not been investing in the kinds of things that you would hope they would for a new economy digitization. You know, when you think about payment systems and, and uh, financial technologies and the kinds of things that people elsewhere are doing, we're way behind it. You know, if you consider, if you look at, at business investment in software, that is to say businesses bringing in software in the services sector to help make their, uh, uh, Business is more productive, and the services sector is a huge part of the economy, so that's where the productivity gain is going to come from. We haven't been doing it in Canada like other places, particularly our neighbor to the south. So I worry about productivity all of the time. It's investing in education. It's investing in infrastructure. You know, if you think about investing in interprovincial infrastructure which is you know, what we need in Canada. And you think about those challenges that we've already talked about, about you know, layers of government um, that, that sort of overlap uh, and have different interests if you're trying to put those projects into place. Um, it's a challenge for Canada. So we've, we've got to get past that.
1: Two of our biggest industries, tel- not biggest maybe, but certainly they employ a lot of people, telco and financial institutions are heavily regulated and certainly when it comes to the banks, part of the reason, I mean, it saved our kind of ass back in 2007 when uh, when the financial crisis hit. We were relatively, not untouched, but we survived. It's a fine balance, right, between deregulating something and, and hoping that it would boost productivity. But at the same time, the other end is like m- making sure things are kind of stable and under control.
0: For sure. And you're right. There is a balancing act there. The other take on uh, how well Canada did in the financial crisis. And I'm not sure I've made up my mind on which side I'm on on this. But the other take, which is perfectly plausible as far as I'm concerned is that uh, we are just so slow to innovate in financial services <laughs> in Canada. And so, you know, had the financial crisis, instead of hitting in 2008, had it hit in 2015, we might have caught, not, caught up to uh, how much we lagged in financial innovation, and we would have been in the middle of it too. So is it that we – was it good regulation and stuff? Probably some of was that. Was it just that we're so slow and so far behind everybody else – Um, or the major players, maybe that's part of it too. And usually in these kinds of things,
1: the answer is somewhere in between. The stock market has sort of become synonymous with, quote-unquote, the economy. Whenever politicians, certainly the Republican politicians in, in, in the South, they always point to the stock market as, look how great the economy is doing. Democrats might argue that, well, the stock market is... An indicator of something, but it's not necessarily a great economy, they might point to purchasing power as a a metric that they would like to see improve, income inequality, decrease. What's your view of this idea that the stock market has become a proxy for how good the economy is doing?
0: I have never really understood the stock market. And so if you were going to, I own stocks just like everybody else, because what else do you do? But um, if you were taking financial advice, you wouldn't want to take it from me. But the thing that, that troubles me about the stock market is just how detached it has become from the economy. You know, how can you have an economy that is growing at less than 2% a year, which is what we were doing before COVID? So everybody kind of now thinks, and maybe not everybody, but but I would say that a consensus of economists now think that trend growth for Canada is about 1.7% into the future. That's compared against 3% in the past, but sort of 1.7% growing into the future. So we have the economy growing at 1%, we have the stock market increasing every year at a multiple of that, of 1.7%, when the underlying business conditions are growing at at 1.7%. So where does that come from? How How can the stock market be growing so much quicker? Well, part of it has to be share buybacks. So, you know, part of what's been uh, um, keeping the the, the economy—I'm uh, sorry, keeping the, the stock market propped up—are companies going back in and buying shares. That makes the share price go up. Demand for the for, for shares increases. So, part of it is that. That might be a helpful story. So, when you say that to people, I, the response I often get back is, "Well, economy or businesses are saying." That they are more comfortable investing in their own business um, than investing in in other things, and so okay, that's fine. And uh, but still, you know, that has been pushing prices up, and that means that it's not um, it, that it's sort of disassociating itself with the economy. Same with the growth part. Um, but the other thing is, you know, inflation. There's no inflation in the economy. At least you can't see it in regular prices the way that we measured. It's 2% this year. It's probably going to be something less than 2% that prices go up. From my childhood, it was in excess of 10%. You know, my dad would come home with 12 and 14% wage increases every year just because inflation was so high. But now, if you're looking for inflation, you don't look in the economy. You look in the stock market. There's stock market inflation. So what's driving that Well, monetary policy that's driven interest rates so low that if you want to get any kind of return on your money, you have to take a risk in the stock market uh, instead of getting your 0% uh, from your bank account or from a bond. And so while there's no inflation in the economy, it seems to me that there's all kinds of inflation in those sorts of asset markets. So another dissociation from what's happening in the real economy. So I'm not sure what's happening there, but it's kind of a fantasy land. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Did you watch the debates?
0: I watched as much as I could stand of the debates. Uh,
1: There was a moment in the second debate where uh, Biden made a comment about oil. And uh, a big deal was made about it. He's anti-oil and all that. And and he basically said in in very clear-cut terms that uh, the U.S. has to... Wean itself off oil and go to clean energy. Not that that's brand new news that we didn't know before, but having him say that at that stage did have an impact, and there was a lot of analysis of that of that comment. Canada is the fourth largest producer of oil, third largest exporter of oil. Uh, We are relying on the Keystone Pipeline project to. I think Alberta is an equity uh, shareholder in that, uh, or equity partner in that. in that project, and at the same time, Canadians aren't necessarily in agreement how the carbon tax, how that thing worked out. There were people against it. There were, there was. We're definitely a little bit divided on on how to actually solve the or address the climate change issue. Is there a contradiction there in the continual investment in oil while at the same time trying to say, well, you know, we are, we also care about the climate? Where what's your view on that?
0: I think it just reflects what happens in an industry in transition. Uh, and that you do, you get things that look like they're that look like they are contradictory uh, in a way. Policies that look like they're contradictory, um, just because you have to transition an industry from where it is now to where it needs to get to. So, in if you think about the uh, the the oil industry and the uh, distillates and the bitumens and everything else that's sort of related to it. The production of, of that has to get cleaner, which requires investment. Um, but also, new forms of energy have to, to uh, start to be developed as well. And those may end up coming from the same places. Uh, not sure, don't know, but, but they may end up being that. But when you're Canada, we have net, the last time I looked at this, and so I'm hoping that this number is approximately correct. But we had net exports of oil uh, in Canada of about $65 billion. And that would have been probably last year before the COVID thing hit, w- which is you know pretty remarkable when you think that we we have uh, very low oil. We have very low prices for our oil in Canada anyway. We don't get world prices for our oil because it's landlocked and has minimal markets and distillers. Um in uh, in the United States have quite a lot of bargaining power over what they pay for Canadian oil. But even with that, it was about $65 billion net. And when I say net, I mean that in the East Coast of Canada, we import oil from someplace else. It doesn't make sense to ship it there. And so, but when you net that out, we're we're a $65 billion roughly net exporter. And in Canada, we have something called a current account deficit, which by and large means that we uh, import more than we export and uh, we send more payments like dividends and things out of the country than we get back in. So we have this current, what we call a current account deficit. It means that we owe the world more than the world owes us. And so in Canada, what do you do when you say, okay, we're going to take out 65 billion dollars immediately and then cause a crisis and so there is a transition that goes on there I think that's part of what you're seeing when you see these uh, Policies that look contradictory We have an objective or at least some governments have an objective about what they want to achieve with the climate uh, But recognize that the transition to getting there uh, Can't be so dramatic um, That it threatens everything else that we're trying to do uh, in the economy as well and so you know, people, if, if you want to learn, if, if you want to kind of force yourself to learn something, you should learn about the current account deficit and what that means for Canada. So if you've not heard that before, Google it, take a look at it and um, uh, find something to deal with your ulcer after you read a lot and find out more about it.
1: COVID has disrupted a lot of supply chains. Do you see any long-term effects in supply chains? Is it are we going to see a trend where we become we try to at least become more self-sufficient? or are we sort of resigned to the u s. as a massive trading partner and are more or less at the at the mercy of their whims, really? Uh, if, if If something happens in the u s, we will feel a big shock? A couple of days back, uh, the Alberta, I forget the official's name. I mean, he was called on to comment on the changing presidency. And, uh, and he stressed how great Canada is at maintaining relationships between different administrations that come and go in the uh, in the u.s uh, Trudeau uh, made it made a point to say that this is going to be his third US president and uh, you know he's had good relations with two of them and there's no reason the third won't continue and Canadians w- will continue to see uh, uh, you know, good things happen. And, and he pointed out the fact that, and he alluded to it at least, that we are so dependent on trade that we'll make sure that there are no tariffs or any shocks that might affect daily Canadian lives. Is that reliance on the US as a trading partner? What is it, 70% of our trade, something like that?
0: It would certainly be in that order. Yeah. yeah.
1: Are we looking to maybe diversify a little bit beyond that?
0: Well, that's always been a thing for Canada, and, you know, ever since I've been studying economics, which is sadly a really, really long time, um, it's it's been one of the things that we've, that's always been talked about, about Canada. You know, we have relied on our endowment of natural resources, they used to call us hewers of wood and drawers of water, as the this sort of thing, and, and we would send uh, our raw materials developed in Canada, send them someplace else, they got... Uh, value added to it turned into cars and other things that we actually want to buy the raw materials are all very delightful, but they 're not <laughs> very good until you can turn them into something that you can actually use and that 's value added that 's what value added means and then we would import back all of the value added stuff and uh, and that worked well because of course we were exporting raw materials in much greater quantities than we were importing back. Uh, finished goods and services, because the raw materials were just building goods and services to supply the whole world, not just goods and services to supply Canada. And uh, and that all worked well for for a long time. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, that has come back again now, if partly through COVID, about whether we are doing enough value-added production in Canada You know, I think that the reality is that we have to deal with the fact that we are a small country and we simply, at least in my opinion, can't do everything ourselves. And it wouldn't make sense to do everything ourselves, as is, I believe, true for most countries. It does not make sense to do things yourself. It makes sense to have cooperative trade relationships where those who can build the things uh, the best and cheapest and safest and cleanest... Uh, get to win. And if we can't do that, we don't get to win in that market, but we get to win in the markets where where we do. I think people often fail to see that, you know, things like trade um, meet other objectives too when it's done properly, which are things like climate objectives. Why should we have different countries inefficiently producing the same goods and services just for domestic consumption, wasting resources, um, that, that could better be used or not used at all. Um, uh, and, and one way of doing that is, is through trade. So I'm, I'm a big believer in trade. I think trade works really well. Just as a bit of an aside, you, you know, I'm also not doctrinaire about it. If there are conditions under which I would not be supportive of, of, a, of freer trade or free trade at all. For example... If all of the benefits of trade ended up going to a small group and didn't advantage Canadians broadly, at least generally broadly, um, then I would say, and this is just this is a political opinion, it's not an economics opinion. Then, then my political opinion might be: well, trade isn't worth that to me if it's just if it's just concentrated in in a small group of winners. Trade is concentrated in winners. Maybe not necessarily a small group, but the benefits of trade are so large that if you have the right policies in place, those gains can be helped to uh, offset some of the losses and help people, in particular, transition into into uh, the industries uh, and skills that that uh, are um,
1: uh, are uh, benefited by trade. A Couple questions related to that, so. Student debt forgiveness. That is, there was a Globe and Mail article today which argued uh, that one of the ways to boost productivity. Is, is to actually forgive all student debts because on average, a student graduates with about $18,000 worth of debt and they carry that on and it burdens them. Are ideas like those worth pursuing for Canada? Because we are trying to find ways to boost productivity. We are trying to uh, trying to find ways to boost innovation and try to be a little bit more self-sufficient. Yes, Trey's always going to be there. But those progressive ideas, do they have a place uh, in Canada?
0: I think they do. I, I, you know, the there's a, a debate around you know, particularly training like university education and, and you can take a step back about whether university education is the right kind of education. Is that the education that we really need and and do we do it properly? You know, putting somebody into place for, into school for four years at a time in their lives when they're young and you would be highly productive and, and we could do things otherwise, other ways. You know, like should we, instead of sending people to university, could we do the same thing except have them in apprenticeship type programs? And I don't mean, you know, just plumbing and electrical apprenticeship programs which are really valuable but you know training somebody to be an economist is the best way to do it to put them into school for four years or is a better way to do it more like an apprenticeship program where they're working and you know getting on the job experience and and training and all that but but setting that issue aside <laughs> getting to the question that you actually asked um you, the the reason that education is subsidized, I think at least, or at least a rationale for why education is subsidized is because the returns to education don't just go to the person who got the education. So if if we take somebody and we put them through college or high school or university and as a consequence of that they become more productive that increased productivity benefits them and their families to be sure but it also benefits the entire economy and so as a consequence we might be willing to say okay well let's invest in people because we know that the returns on that investment is going to be the return on that investment is going to be good you know if you look at the returns on university education for example um, the the estimates tend to be between uh, fifteen and twenty percent per year higher income compared to somebody who completed their education at the end of high school. Think about other investments that you can make that generate a fifteen to twenty percent annual return forever. You know those are pretty few and far between, uh, but but education is one that does it. And, you know, the, the, the revenues that people, governments benefit from higher incomes because they're able to get taxes back. And, you know, if you think about the COVID thing, education would be a big part of that if those higher returns to education continue to, to uh, persist after COVID. Um, we invest in education, we increase productivity, and then we're able to pay for the consumption that we've moved to now, which should have been future consumption, but we had to move it now to fight the COVID part. Uh, we can pay for that through this increased productivity and increased tax revenues that we get from higher levels of education. So I think there's, there's reason to, uh, to be supportive of it as a public investment. The issue then I guess is, should it be a hundred percent or should it be less than a hundred percent or free or free? You know, uh, some people see that in black and white on that part. I see gray more. I see support for for education, uh, government support for education. Uh, but I see more gray there because, and people will hate me for this, but there are certain types of education that I think that we should be investing in. That we should be investing public money in, and those are the kinds of educations that get higher returns. And there are others where at least me, uh, I might not be as thrilled as investing in those subject matter areas, for example. But that's me. Other people would say, well, listen, you make people better citizens. And by making people better citizens, you make them more productive. And, and, and they would say to me, you just you know, spent 10 minutes talking about how you shouldn't be picking in winners and losers. And here you are picking winners and losers. <laughs> so I'm, I'm subject to my own criticism yeah. there.
1: Uh, here's a quote from today's uh, Globe and Mail again. Uh, Growing confidence may explain why the government felt bold enough to raise its immigration target on October 30th by 17%. Next year, it plans to invite more than 400,000 permanent residents, more than 1% of the population. The last time it welcomed that many immigrants was in 1913. So it's 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 been a while. At the same time, skilled immigrants who are already in Canada they continue to experience high levels of unemployment or underemployment, even a few years after they've come into, uh, into Canada. What can we do as a province or a country to actually ease that transition more? Uh, because we have doctors, we have lawyers, we have people who are highly educated people coming into Canada and still not being able to work in their field. And this problem has been, is, this is not a new problem. It's been going around for 20 years, but we ha- we haven't seemed to have made much progress on this one.
0: Yeah, well, it, you know, immigration is certainly a thing we need uh, in Canada. We talked about, before we were talking about demographics, and, you know, natural population growth is so slowing, and entry into the labor force is slowing. Just as a bit of an aside on our, on our Canadian statistics and immigration, you know, you, you had said that you were looking at a target of 400,000, um, and then uh, the last time we saw that was something like in the early 1900s. Um, the interesting thing is you know, we, we sort of have regularly increased our targets, um, and I'm not sure that we've ever uh, always met our targets. So it's one thing to increase a target. Well, let's make it a million next year. It's another thing to actually attract... Uh, a million people, and the fact is that Canada is not the only one in the boat that Canada is in of slow population growth and and uh, uh, demographics that are not supportive of economic growth, and so the competition for immigrants of the type of the type that we normally think of, which are the young, highly skilled uh, uh, people uh, who you'd like, you know, who are who are going to be the foundations of an economy in the future it is incredibly tough competition to get those people because Europe is like this. The United States is like this. You know, everybody's got this. Well, not everybody, but, but um, certainly the receptor countries for new immigrants all have this problem. So, you know, it's important not to understate how stiff the competition for immigrants is. Uh, And Canada faces that too. We have some advantages, but we have lots of disadvantages as well. Um and but but how can we make that transition easier? You know, one of the things I think is that there is some protection that goes on through occupational licensing. Um and uh you, you know, it depends on who you talk to and I'm certainly not an expert on occupational licensing. Um but you know, th- with all kinds of licensing like that, um it is there to restrict the supply. And, you know, if you think about physicians, you can t- tell stories on both sides about why it's important to restrict supply. It's expensive and, and physicians, for example, it can be argued that they can generate their own demand and it's paid for by the public sector. And, you know, so there, there might be reasons why you want to, to limit supply of, of certain kinds of things. On the other hand, uh, it also reduces opportunities Uh, for people through these licensing restrictions. So that's a problem. Uh, I have often heard my students say that one of the challenges that they found, so these would be, um, you know, first-generation students who come to Canada and who are able to get a work visa for a particular period of time after they finish their degree, and they'll say, you know, one of the challenges that they face is this issue of Canadian experience. You always hear people say, we've gotten into job interviews and... uh, one of the barriers that we hit is that people will ask, do you have any experience? And they'll say, oh, yes, I worked in financial services during the summers when I was a student in country X. And then they'll say, do you have any Canadian experience? That one is a lot tougher. And so I don't know what's behind that. What does Canadian experience mean? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and Particularly in financial services. But what does is, what is Canadian experience mean? Is that a form of of um, kind of restriction, of, of exclusion? Um, or is there something legitimate behind what that Canadian experience is? Is there a cultural difference that that um, that makes that experience more important? I don't know, but I think we need to get to the bottom of whatever that is.
1: Yeah, I, I think part of it has to do with uh, immigrants are coming from countries sometimes who have systemic corruption in a lot of institutions. So you can't actually trust what's on a piece of paper. And uh, like a a low-end example of that might be a driver's license. You can get a driver's license in another country, and there's an easy mapping between getting that driver's license in Canada. It's fairly straightforward, and you don't really run into too many issues. But a medical license... Is an entirely different matter because the impact of that. I mean, you you could, I guess, you could still like, you know, have a be a terrible driver and kill somebody, and that'd be a terrible thing. But the physician might have higher impact on, um, you know, if they start practicing in Canada. So it's not an easy problem to solve, but we just haven't solved it in in quite some time.
0: And part of it may be, you know, I think that that a very large part of it is is, um, you know, just a lack of knowledge by Canadian employers. If you look at and and I certainly would have been in this boat. I've been fortunate in my career to be able to go to India and China and work at uh, at at higher educational institutions in, in in lots of other countries. And some of the things that you find about uh, find out about is how naive you were about the quality of what's happening uh, in schools there. You know, and if, so if you take somebody with an engineering degree or a software engineering degree or something like that, and then they come to Canada. Um, you don't know what the school is, and you, you don't know what their background is necessarily. Um, but with a little bit more knowledge, you might find that it's you know not exactly what you thought, and in fact, per- per- perhaps very different from you th- from what you thought. And it's always a thing, you, you, you know. I it, and it's true for everybody. I think we need to have human resource management selection tools for hiring new people that. Are probably a better quality than what we have now, and so you think about machine learning and artificial intelligence. I wonder if we're going to be able to get to with all the, the concerns there are, particularly around human resource management issues. But but if we have tools like that that are help us to better able pre- to predict for people that we don't or for people with backgrounds that we don't see very often. Um, to help us to be able to predict how well they're going to do in a particular workplace setting, I think that will be helpful. It'll be an objective tool that that um,
1: that I that may help us overcome some of these things. Uh, I, I don't think such a tool exists, and that's a great uh, application of machine learning and uh, and AI. We certainly
0: have lots of data about what people come in with and uh, and what their how their careers
1: evolve. I want to talk about Wealth of Nations and Adam Smith a little bit. And uh, so I came across this information a couple of uh, couple of weeks ago. I, I didn't know that because I've, I've always heard The Invisible Hand. And I Googled up. Uh, the book, by the way, is too thick. I haven't read it. It's just, it's too massive. I, I don't, I, have you read it? Have you read Adam Smith's uh, Wealth of Nations? Do you
0: know that uh, I was given a gift and I think mine is a four or five volume set because it continued to evolve. And uh, it was a gift and uh, it it was the last edition of the book that Adam Smith actually worked on, and then he he passed away before that version was published or before that edition was published. But yeah, I read it. In fact, my dissertation, hundreds of years later, my PhD dissertation, uh, an element of it was on still an Adam Smith theory from the Wealth of Nations, if you can believe Which it. Which was? Um, It is, it's, it's called, it's for compensating wage differentials. And so basically the idea is this, if you, if you think about the labor market and you think about jobs that have poor conditions, you know, working, poor working conditions, they're dirty or noisy or dangerous. And my, my interest was in the dangerous part, um, Those people, when you hold other factors constant about the job and the education and the type of person who would do the work, their demographic characteristics, when you hold those constant, does the labor market, and this is part of the invisible hand theory, does the labor market work so that that person gets paid a little bit more for taking on those poor work conditions than for somebody who doesn't, whose job is otherwise the same, statistically, but don't have to take on those Poorer working conditions, and the answer to that remarkably is yes so in my in my dissertation it was an Adam Smith thing again. it was looking at people who have relatively who work in relatively risky workplaces and are their wages higher than people who work in relatively safe uh uh, workplaces may be in the same industry. And the answer to that was yes, they got a compensating differential for that. Some of that gets institutionalized in collective agreements, you know, you might get danger pay, as it used to be called or something like that. But the labor market generates it itself. And here, so here I was hundreds of years later, using data for Ontario and finding exactly the same thing.
1: So, so a guy working in a coal mine 100 feet below is getting paid more than the manager who's above ground?
0: Um, nope, because uh, one guy is the manager and the other guy. So you have to hold those things constant. But, but so, but let me give you a different example. So the guy who is working underground as a miner is going to get paid more than the guy who is working in above ground or open pit operations, who's even mining the same product. Okay. So you're controlling for
1: kind of job title and then going from there. Exactly. That's right. The wealth of nations point was this. The term invisible hand is used only once in Wealth of Nations, and only once in moral sentiments. In Wealth of Nations, it's used as an example when English merchants were trading abroad. Uh, so I think Smith goes, well, it's going to be great for them, because they're going to be you know, getting, pri- getting things for cheaper prices, and it'll be good for their industry, but it'll be bad for the English people, but... Because of uh, because these guys have home bias, they care about the country as if through an invisible hand, the people at home will be taken care of. So there is definitely a very socialist element to that to that viewpoint. And in moral sentiments, is a very similar example. It's about landowners accumulating um, a lot of land, and by as if through an invisible hand, they would take care of the farmers who would work on that land. So in both in both instances, there is very much a progressive view there. But when you hear about The Invisible Hand, when you hear people talk about it, it's certainly equated a lot with neoliberalism and, and, and capitalism.
0: Yeah, it certainly is. It's become kind of one of those things like, uh, uh, play it again, Sam, and Casablanca. Nobody ever said, play it again, Sam, and Casablanca. You know? And so, everybody's just taken to giving it its own meaning. And and uh, you know I'm I'm kind of in the same boat. I've taken to giving giving the invisible hand my own meaning too, and my own meaning is, is so that means I get to pick whatever I want. And my own my own meaning is a little bit different than everybody else's. Which I think that what the invisible hand uh, is really, in my interpretation, is how the economy adjusts. So. And and it adjusts in a way that where there are incentives created, and and people adjust. And so I think back to and institutions adjust over time. I think back to SARS, and you know when we had SARS in Toronto, the predictions at the time is you know GDP is, is going to fall by ten percent, it's going to be apocalyptic, and none of that happened. Because people don't just sit there and take it. They adjust their behavior. That's what we saw in COVID too. We all thought we were going to starve to death. And, you know, and it didn't happen because people adjust their behavior. And that's the way that I've always thought of the invisible hand. You know, we talk about when you listen to to people that I hear frequently talk about, you know... um, Worrisome situations for Canada about low productivity, and including me, you know, about low productivity and the, um, you know, the current account deficit and government debt and all of that. The fact of the matter is that all those things can run up, and we will find a way of dealing with. There'll be a transition period, and we will make an adjustment to it because we will have to. You know, people don't just sit and take it, and that's what the invisible hand is. I think it's about not sitting there and taking it. It's about adjustment.
1: Let's talk about climate change a little bit. Um, on the way over here, I was listening to uh, a podcast, the Econ Econ Podcast. I forget the name right now. Econ Talk, I think it's called. And uh, Stephen Levin was on it. He's the Freakonomics guy. Uh, do you consider him an economist? Yes, I sure do. Okay. Because yeah. he himself doesn't really consider himself an economist. <laughs> so <we're laughs> Does he think he's a sociologist? He, he, he considers, considers himself a behavioral economist with a small b. Hmm. Fair enough. Yeah. He's, he's a very um,
0: multidisciplinary guy. That's why I like so much about him. He yeah. gets insights from everything. Yeah. So
1: his take uh, while I was driving over here was climate change, the way we have approached climate change has been more or less a failure, whether it be the Paris Accord or whatever we're trying to do from a policy perspective, it's really not working because we have failed to provide a, a monetary incentive to do it. There is a bit of a social incentive to do it, and there's a bit of a moral incentive to do it. And as an economist, you're basically playing with incentives most of the time. So he's, he, he's saying we failed on all three accounts, and it is not really possible to incentivize people to care about the climate. And our best hope is technology solutions, like some sort of technology solution that comes comes across and makes the problem sort of go away. And I don't know if he fully subscribes to this viewpoint in its in its extreme, but do you share the same um, cynicism? I guess that we don't. We haven't really come up with a with an incentive where people like you and I will certainly me. Even though I care about the climate, I haven't really changed my behaviors to the point where like there just hasn't been an incentive for me. Is there a solution there?
0: Yeah, it's you know the the technological solutions are always kind of like the you know let's let's rub our lucky rabbits foot <laughs> and hope that 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 something happens in the future and somebody smart will figure this out and and you know probably somebody smart will figure it out. Um, as an economist, I certainly believe in incentives and I believe in financial incentives because uh, people do respond to them. The thing that 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 I always find challenging about these things, particularly with a big topic like climate change, is that, you know, it's not something that's just happening in the four walls of your factory or that we can put up big walls around our country, even though people have tried that, um, that, and and that that everything is kind of contained within your country. You know, we're we're an ecosystem. We're, We're all connected in that regard. And it's just how easy it is to... Um, undo something that somebody else is doing. And so the the level of cooperation that I think even for financial incentives to work you might get it to work in Canada but then the wind blows and you know, you've got somebody else's uh, pollution in Canada. It's I think it, it takes a, a higher level of cooperation. And so I'm wondering that if when Stephen Levitt says that, whether he kind of acknowledges that too, that it's just too, in some ways, it's just too big a problem, too big of a coordination problem uh, in in order to get something meaningful out of it. And so that you have to ask for a technological thing. And the other thing is too, with regulation, is that you know there are a lot of really smart people who when you put up an expensive regulation, there are a lot of of people who see the incentive as trying to be getting around that regulation and how, you know, how do you get around the leg- regulation and how do you lobby so that the regulation isn't as impactful on you as it is on somebody else. And it's sort of like squeezing a balloon, you know, and it just pops out someplace else. So um, I am kind of cynical about it myself. Um, I'm hopeful but, um, you know, I guess it's sort of like, um, what another great economist, Paul Samuelson said, he had a book called, uh, hard heads and soft hearts. And I think that's what, what we need. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, so you mentioned there, uh, you believe in financial incentives and obviously you would, you would have to like compensate companies to go green. I think Obama tried that a fair bit, uh, in incentivizing companies to adopt green technologies and, and, and green processes. Uh, we can debate how much it how much it worked and how much it didn't move the needle all this requires money to be spent i want to run this theory by you modern monetary theory yes. Have, are you familiar with this one i am okay explain what this is and what your view of it is
0: yeah so in a sense it's not it's not very far different from kind of what we're doing now. Uh, now in as in post-COVID or? Well, even pre and post-COVID. So you might even argue uh, post-financial crisis. So going back 12 years. Um, and so, but it is more, at least I think of it more as a change in attitude about what we're doing. And so basically the idea is that it's kind of like a cooperative thing between governments and central banks. And so that that. Governments don't when they when governments uh, go to raise money when they spend they get the money essentially from the central bank. So you can think of the central bank as printing money, um, which uh, the government then uses uh, to go out and purchase goods and services and and investment you know bridges and uh, roads and all the kinds of the infrastructure investments. Um, and so, in a sense, it's not unlike. Certain elements of quantitative easing that we're doing right now, I, I heard somewhere uh, in the last few weeks, and so you have to take this with a bit of a grain of salt because I'm not 100% sure where I heard this, but you know, if you look at new issuances of government bonds, so you, normally when governments issue bonds, um, investors, individual investors and institutional investors like insurance companies and pension plans and, and others will buy those, and then uh, there'll be a little bit left over where the central bank purchases it, and they use that as a way of increasing the money supply. It's one way of increasing the money supply. Uh, more recently, uh, about seventy percent of all new issues have been financed, have been purchased entirely by the central bank. You know, during this, this post COVID thing, and then that money is taken by the government, and it's been uh, handed out in transfer payments and and whatever else government's been doing with it. And that's kind of what modern monetary theory is, but it has an interesting twist. And the interesting twist is the way that it thinks about uh, the impact of government expenditures on interest rates. So normally, the way that, or traditionally at least, the way that economists have thought about this is that governments are out there competing with other investors for loanable funds. So if there's savings out there, um, companies might borrow those savings from a bank in order to make investments. Individuals might borrow them to, to, uh, for a mortgage to buy a house. And governments borrow as well to finance the shortfall between their expenditures and tax revenues. And so the, the way that economics has traditionally thought about this is that government is out there competing in this market for money and if they need to borrow more it means that the demand for money goes up and the interest rate goes up what they're going to have to pay for that but it doesn't just go up for government it goes up for everybody because there's a limited amount of savings out there there's a fixed amount of savings in modern monetary theory they kind of turn that on their head and say well look what really happens is that if governments spend money they're putting money out into the economy and so it's actually increasing the amount of money in the economy, and that should be putting downward pressure on interest rates. So it's completely the opposite of the way that people normally think about it. Now the risk is a country like the United States could experiment with modern monetary theory, and I, I'm I'm kind of advancing the position that they have in a way. A country like Canada has a little bit. More of a challenge with it because we're so small and modern monetary theory works so long as uh, politicians don't become pigs so if you can make spending free essentially for politicians they're going to spend like crazy and that means that the money supply will keep increasing and then you have inflation and so what what uh, modern monetary theory would say is okay well when you have inflation what ends up happening is that the government spends less money. There's less money out there in the economy. It slows the economy down and it puts downward pressure on prices. So inflation goes back down again. That's the way it will all happen. That may happen that way. But to me, that takes a giant leap of faith to believe that that's going to happen. That's modern monetary theory. It's, it's an interesting thing. It's out there. Uh, It sounds like a free lunch. Um, And in some ways it's not very much different from what we're doing now. So you're going to be hearing a lot more about this because you can see why
1: politicians would love this idea. It also talks about uh, employment in a, in a very unique way, where it goes. I mean, the goal is 100% employment, and you spend until you essentially achieve that, and only once you have 100% employment, then you can you have to worry about inflation because the idea is whatever the government spends goes into boosting the productivity of the country because people are doing things that they otherwise maybe normally would not have done.
0: Yeah, that's right. And, you know, they're comparing it to now because if you, you know, if you looked, and it's all about the the inflationary pressure. So the idea is that, you know, as employment goes up, there's sort of a notion that as employment goes up, uh, inflation goes up because the demand for goods and services increase and it takes time for there to be a supply response and all that. So you see inflation, um, during that period of time. My, my problem, or at least the challenge that I have thinking about this through in terms of how what I think about modern monetary theory, is the way that you think about inflation. So what, what people uh, who are very pro-modern monetary theory would say is that well, you know, uh, the United States has had very unemployment, uh, very low unemployment rates, you know, of three or three and a half percent, which is below what people thought of the natural uh, of as the natural rate of employment. And economists have a special term that's actually important here, even though it sounds kind of geeky, which is called the non accelerating inflation rate of unemployment. Everybody else calls that the un- uh, the natural unemployment rate, but. In economics, we call it the Nehru, non-accelerating inflation rate of unemployment. And that's the level of, of unemployment where once you hit there, if you go below that level, then you could expect to see inflation. Well, modern monetary theorists say we've gone well below what people thought that natural rate of unemployment was, that Nehru was, and we haven't seen any inflation at all. And so you say, well, that's true. CPI, the Consumer Price Index type inflation, the one you hear about every month, has been going up by about 2% a year for a long time. And that might be true. But my problem with that is that it's because you're not looking for inflation. You don't find inflation if you're not looking for it. And so not included in the Consumer Price Index, for example, is house prices. So if you sell your house, that you've not, not a new house, but, but a house that you've already had, if you sell that house, uh, for much more than you bought it for, and house prices have been going up like crazy, that's not included in the consumer price index. If you um, Stock prices that we've talked about earlier and how those asset prices have been inflating like crazy, not included in the consumer price index. So if you're not looking for where inflation is, it's not going to be in there. So I would be much more comfortable with modern monetary theory, and this is probably something that I just need to have somebody explain to me, is what the real measure of inflation is then when you're doing it, because it's not what we have now, I don't think. And inflation is a bad thing. You know, it's important to understand why inflation is a bad thing. And it's because prices go up and incomes go up. But it distributes, it redistributes wealth in a way that uh, is unpredictable.
1: What was that? Is that an inflation problem? If wages go up and prices go up, um, that should theoretically sort of cancel itself out if everybody's wages go up. But that's the issue. Do
0: everybody's wages go up? Or are some people sort of left behind when that inflation happens? If you're in the industries whose prices are going up like crazy, then your wages are going to go up like crazy. If you're in the industries that are commoditized industries where prices aren't going up, then your wages aren't going to go up. And there's this redistribution of wealth that has nothing to do with what we think about the way that wealth should be redistributed. It all happens about how lucky you were to protect yourself against inflation or not. So, you know, we we don't think about inflation because um, it's been so low for so long. But um, inflation is a horrific thing. And if you were around in the 1970s and 1980s where we had real inflation, and not like hyperinflations, but inflations that were double-digit type inflations, I can remember in the early 1980s, Uh, My mother and father had, uh, on their mortgage, they had, um, uh, their mortgage rate was about to reset. So it's the same as now, you know, every five years it resets. So they had a, a fixed term mortgage, but amortized over 20 or 25 years. And in 1981, 1982, if you go back and look at statistics about what happened to interest rates, we had high inflation. the Federal Reserve in the United States, the same as the Bank of Canada, but the U.S. version of it, decided that they were going to raise overnight interest rates astronomically. My parents' mortgage went up from about 8% when they had to go, and they were just unlucky about when they had to refinance. Their mortgage went up from about 8% a year. Can you believe that? They were paying 8% a year on their mortgage. And they're happy to do it, because that's what mortgages used to be, to over 20% overnight when they had to go in and remortgage, uh, when they had to go in and renew their mortgage. That's an example of my parents, just by the luck of the draw, not having been able to protect themselves against inflation like that. So suddenly, their wealth went way down because they were giving over more of their income and interest payments on the same house they owned the day before at an 8% interest rate. Inflation equals bad. Inflation equals bad, deflation equals bad, stable prices equal good. That's the other side of the coin, and people have been talking about this through COVID too. Deflation, where prices go down. Everybody thinks that's a, you know, that sounds like a good thing because your real buying power goes up. If your income doesn't go down and prices go down, that's the same as getting a raise. But the problem with that is that everybody puts their hands in their pockets. That's what happened in Japan to a certain extent. So if you know that prices are going to be lower tomorrow than they are today, what do you do about buying your car today? You don't, you wait till tomorrow. And then what happens tomorrow? Well, you know prices the next day are gonna be low. And so nobody buys anything then. And then the economy doesn't get going. So the key thing is low and stable price increases. That's what central banks always say. It's the motto of our Bank of Canada. It sounds like that's what we're doing for the last little while, though. So hopefully it stays that way. Depends where you look for inflation. <laughs> if, you, if you're not measuring it, if, if you're not looking at the things where prices are going up, then... You've been at the University of Toronto for... 25 years. I just got my letter
1: uh, in
0: the last couple of days telling me that I've been at the University of Toronto for 25 years, and I got a little
1: pin. So maybe you can comment on this next uh, thought that... Um, that a few professors have have echoed. Judging by your tenure at U of D, you you probably should have seen this at least five times. And it goes, what happens in universities happens on the street five years later. So what's happening in universities these days that we're going to see on the street in five?
0: You know, I think what's been on the street five years ago is also showing up in universities. At least that's my experience. And and uh, one of the things that there's a few things that I've noticed, um, my, my teaching has been primarily in our executive MBA program. So we have a domestic executive MBA program uh, and we have a couple of global executive MBA programs. And the people who are coming to do those programs are people who are, who are older Um, who are, sometimes they're looking for uh, a career boost. Sometimes they are looking to reinvent themselves. Um, Sometimes they're new to Canada and they want, you know, a Canadian credential and they want to uh, to have an opportunity to meet people within the class and with industries, within uh, broad sets of industries in Canada. And so executive MBA programs are great for all of those kinds of things. Um, And there's a few... Interesting trends. I've been involved with those almost since the beginning of my career at the University of Toronto. And so so I've seen some things um, that I think are kind of interesting trends. I'm not sure I have an explanation for them all, but I think they're interesting. And so you, you can invent your own explanation. But one of them is that when I first started in that program, when I first started teaching in that program, most of our executive students who were coming to it got some form of financing from their employer and for many of them it was full financing and they might have to have come to an agreement with their employer that they you know if they left because the employer was making a sizable investment in them it's their expensive programs um but if they left their employer you know within four years then they had to do kind of a pro-rated thing so you'd for every year that you didn't stick around you had to pay back 25 percent of it kind of thing Um, Until four years. And so a a lot of students came with that. And, you know, at the time, the students who were coming were mostly thinking about having a career in the same organization, uh, but moving up the ranks into senior management roles. And sometimes the organization sent them there to help prepare them for for that move and help them build their leadership style and all that kind of stuff. In the years since, it's really evolved into something different, which is that, you know, a lot of people coming to the program, there's still people who are doing that. But for the most part, they're not receiving the same level of support. And very few of them are getting full levels of support. But they come with sort of a more entrepreneurial mindset. They have uh, a better appreciation for leadership. There used to be this, always this discussion about hard skills, which meant, you know, finance and accounting and balance sheets and, you know, those sort of math hard skills, the stats part, and economics, which is what I teach, and what people used to call soft skills. And somehow soft skills were sort of less important. But now I think people understand the important role of leadership in ways that they probably, because there's been so much discussion about it and so much in organizations hinge on it, um, that I think that there's now a fuller appreciation for what leadership means. And you you could be somebody who comes into the program saying, I really like finance, I want to be the CFO. But one of the things you discover along the path there as you take on more leadership roles is that you discover that more and more of your work is dealing with people issues and less and less of it is dealing with calculating stuff like you thought you were going to be doing when when you did finance. And so if you want to be the VP of finance, for example, if that's your career objective or the chief financial officer, the CFO, you discover that everybody in the C-suite is really the vice president of HR because they spend most of their time on people issues. And so the people who have discovered that now uh, have come back to build those sorts of leadership skills. And that's been an exciting thing to watch people come back and do that. They want the other things. They want the skills and the other things. They want to be more effective leaders uh, around the table and have input into those important business decisions. But they understand that the way that you get things done is through, through leadership in organizations. The other thing that's been kind of interesting is uh, watching the evolution of our programs into more experiential learning. Even at the executive level, so people who have had more experience, and you know we've had to make changes. we've adjusted our global executive MBA programs in this way in particular. in those programs, we travel all around the world and, and you know so you go to China and Hong Kong for one week in each place, for example, over a two week period. and what people want, you know it used to be the case where you kind of flew everybody there and they were in the classroom for 35 hours a week and so had limited opportunities to do experiential learning. Even before COVID, we kind of changed that around so that we could do more of the learning as on-demand learning to the extent that we could. So we would have um, pre-recorded video content, which we got better at doing uh, at the school and made a real investment in it. Um, Or we would have you know, synchronous kinds of things before you went and do introductory things and maybe closing things at the end to take hours out of that time to create more time for experiential learning and meeting people uh, and interacting in, in real business relationships. And that has now percolated to, to our undergraduate programs or, or our, our other MBA programs and even our undergraduate programs to a certain extent. And the other thing I think that's been really important is a new focus on sustainability. People still have their own definitions of what sustainability means, but people know that it's important and people want to learn more about it. And that's been an exciting thing to watch too. So, and so I'm not sure where that came from. That's one of those ones. Did sustainability come to us or did we come to sustainability or did we meet somewhere in between? Whatever it is, uh, it's, uh,
1: it's exciting to see. It's probably the invisible hand. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> So to end, COVID, the vaccine is here. Uh, Pfizer released uh, a statement a couple days ago that it's 90% efficacy. So hopefully we'll see the back of COVID in a few months, uh, maybe a year at the most, hopefully. But what have you observed about the world that maybe has uh, surprised you?
0: Well, you know, I think that COVID has been a great experiment for us to find out about the way that we do everything, the way that we live our lives, the way that we deal with our working lives, the way that we interact with government, the way that government interacts with us, the way that we think about investments in ways that we might not have had an opportunity to think of otherwise. And it's opened our eyes to the idea that there are different ways of doing things. You know, I hear people talking now um, where their organizations have said, Uh, well, for a large group of you, you may never be coming back to the office. And when you do come back to the office, it's going to be different than it was before. So it's not a place where we're going to expect you to be. There are times maybe when it's still more important to interact face-to-face. But that's not the way you should think about the rest of your career. It's forced us to think about time. You know, people used to talk about um, work-life balance, and that's not something that I've ever been good at. I've sort of had work-life choice, um, but, but balance is, has not been really part of my vocabulary. But it makes you think. So on the one hand, there's people who say, well, gee, you know, the way my life is at home now, I can't really distinguish work from, from my home life because it's all sort of become this amalgam. And that's one way of thinking of it. The other way, though, is I think of it that way, too, but it creates so much more flexibility in how you have your home and work time. You know, if I need to take or if somebody needs to take their children to do something, they can do it and they can make up for it later in the day. Those are choices that they get to make about how they manage their day themselves. And it's created all of this new flexibility. And maybe we feel some discomfort with how we're going to manage that, and it's different from what we were used to. But there are these opportunities there that didn't exist before. And I've become excited about how uh, people have changed their lives, about how businesses think about the way that they're doing business. If you thought about real estate investments, uh, commercial real estate investments back in last year at this time. And now you think about commercial real estate investments now. Look how much your mindset has changed on all of those things. The way that you think about investing in everything, the way that you shop, you know, it, all of that has changed. And I, and I think in ways that are really exciting and shows us what, what the future is going to be and, and how, despite being very separate, how much more connected we are than we thought we were.
1: And I also think that once COVID is over, people right now are stuck in their homes and once COVID is over, I think it opens up a lot of leisure time, which is currently not available. Or if, if it is available, it's within the confines of your house and the opportunities for leisure are not there. I think once COVID goes away and we continue living this lifestyle, the amount of leisure time will increase. And I think that will have a marked difference on happiness. And and the, the activities, you know, like things that
0: people didn't explore, I think it will make people happier too. You, you know, where we are now the street that you came in on to get here uh, leads to some bicycle trails. And uh, up until this year, there would be a car or two parked along there to get along the bicycle trails. Now it's packed. Every weekend, it's packed with people who are out bicycling and walking through the trails. I expect this winter, people will be out doing cross-country skiing and rediscovering all of those things um, that they had just gotten into a rut of not doing. And And how... And I realize they're just activities, but I'm sure this is going on in other people's lives too, about how um, they've had an opportunity to find out how their lives can be enriched
1: by getting out of a routine. Doug, thank you so much for your time today. We really enjoyed it. And uh, hopefully we can have you back at some point in the future. This was so much fun.
0: I, I got to end this by telling a story that I always tell, which is that, you know, um, economists, uh, if you're if you're a good economist, you answer questions. But if you're a great economist, you listen to questions, figure out that you can't really answer it because you don't know the answer. And instead, you turn the question into something that you can answer and answer that. So I hope that I didn't do too much of that.
1: I was expecting that of an economist. So I didn't really expect any concrete answers to, uh, you know, one of the questions was about student debt forgiveness and all that. And you basically explained why or why not it might be a good or bad idea. <laughs> <laughs> Thank goodness. The Drinkworks Home Bar by Keurig is the perfect gift or addition to a small gathering. The Home Bar makes over 30 drinks from cosmopolitans to old fashions at the push of a button. Just insert the pod, press start, and enjoy. Each Drinkworks pod contains real ingredients and premium spirits. For a limited time, get $50 off the home bar with promo code HOLIDAY. Go to drinkworks.com to order now. Drinkworks. Press play. Keurig is a registered trademark of Keurig Green Mountain, Inc., used under license. Please enjoy responsibly. The Medicare annual election period
0: deadline is almost here. I'm Meredith Vieira. Here are examples of people who started their search
1: for coverage at myhealthpolicy.com. Meet Larry. He likes doing things online, so he started... At MyHealthPolicy.com. I took my time and
0: found the coverage I was looking for. And... done. Next is Mary. When she wanted answers, she picked up the phone. I wanted a local perspective on plans, so I called MyHealthPolicy.com and... done. Switched to a better plan. And Michael.
1: I met with a local licensed insurance agent face-to-face. And...
0: done.